This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hi, everyone. I'm Bev Jones, and this is Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that might have an impact on your career. Today, we're talking about the concept of diversity in the workplace. Years ago, when we fought for equal career opportunity, a lot of us assumed that if a diverse mix of people were hired for entry-level jobs, then eventually, we'd all figure out how to get along and we'd work well together. Turns out, it's not that simple. Many organizations today include people from a broad variety of cultural backgrounds, but not everyone is heard, and sometimes teams can't even function. Our guest today, Rob Jones, says it's time for us to move past old and limited ideas about diversity and head toward organizational cultures that are truly able to deliver equity, collaboration, and the full benefits of a workforce where not all people think alike. Rob is a leading executive coach, and his Pittsburgh-based firm, In Good Company LLC, helps leaders navigate business and social changes. Rob is also a thought leader on topics related to diversity and inclusion. His writing suggests that hiring a diverse team is just one of the key steps toward real inclusion. Today, Rob will explain how the real magic happens when the culture allows people with different backgrounds and ideas to collaborate, to solve problems, and to create new paths. Rob, you once told me that you've had a, a cowpath career. It's taken you everywhere, from starting out as a long-haired musician to, to working in marketing and government affairs, which is when I met you, and all kinds of ways. And now you're a big-time expert on um, organizational leadership. Can you give us a quick overview of how that evolved? How did you get from uh, music to being an organizational guru? Um, I, the, the guru part of it, we'll watch and see how that works out. But uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the long-haired musician. Uh, as a kid, I was playing guitar from the age of 13. My mother actually gave me a guitar because I, I just needed a few other things to think about in my life than maybe what was going on around me. And uh, that guitar actually is the reason why we're sitting here on the podcast today. Had that not happened, my life would have taken a very different turn. We... Um, one of the bands I was in by the time I got into my 20s uh, had a, a, a groupie, a, uh, we can call him a fan if that, if that sounds a little more socially appropriate, but a uh, great guy. And we were discussing my music career and the way the band was taken off. He showed up everywhere we played. The uh, question, how was I doing? I told him I just needed to get a bit of a job uh, during the day because I had a growing family. I had met my wife in the course of the uh, the music career. And uh, he tried to talk me out of it initially. His his comment was, you guys have great potential. You're the best band in, in town. You're going to be great. And I just said, uh, Craig, I, I can't feed my family potential. So he reached in his pocket, handed me a business card and said, come and see me on Monday morning. Turned out he owned 
one of the larger employment agencies in the city. Wow. I had no idea. And uh, uh, after taking a couple of tests, he sent me in for an interview. And uh, you, you know where that was? It was to uh, the company you and I worked at for years. Uh, by the end of that week, I, I had a job offer and started on Monday morning. I had no idea that that's how you started at C&G, and, and, and you were in the People's Natural Gas um, I was in company, that business that unit, part. that operating company, yeah. Yeah, while you were up at the, uh, at the holding company. Well, a lot has changed since then. So how did you get from, well, <laughs> you did a, a lot of things at People's, as I recall, from marketing to community affairs, and you and I worked on other government affairs activities together, and you kind of knew everybody in town. Uh, but yeah. it was all public affairs, kind of outward-looking stuff. And along the way, you started focusing on how organizations function, right? Absolutely. The the first half of, of my career inside the the entire organization actually was uh, uh, inward facing, uh, administrative, computer systems, information systems. Uh, a lot of the information flow through the company became part of my responsibility, and and then about halfway through it shifted to outward facing, and uh, that's that's where you and I intersected in, in the uh, community affairs, economic development, government affairs. Uh, and uh, um, I had gotten involved in everything from local government, municipal uh, government, all the way up to federal uh, um, agencies like DOE, American Gas Association. We got to hang around there quite a bit. So I got to know everything from D.C. on, on, on down to, to the hometown. And, and the company put that to work, uh, did, did fairly well with it. I had an awful lot of fun, great time doing it. And in the course of that, especially the community affairs, just got to work with uh, nonprofit organizations, uh, quite a few boards over the years, uh, even national boards. And uh, so as a result, the experience base was just tremendous, knowing how the organization worked on the inside and, and interacted with the general public and customer base on the outside. And we were fortunate because that was a, a good company. It was a company that had real values embedded into the operations. And, and um, my experience as a lawyer working with lots of different companies, it, it was a special one. Yeah, we, we had, I, I think what, what you might call a, a very centered uh, operation overall. We, we had, uh, even though it was a vertically integrated business and, and, and we were all over the place in terms of trying to make sure it, it continued to work as well as it could, we still had some central, uh, I'll call family values. I found uh, quite a few folks uh, over over the years I was at the company that really cared about one another. The strength of, of that entire company really focused on relationships. And that, in the end, is what I came to understand was the most important thing you could have going inside an organization, not not just processes but you have to have relationships that are enduring throughout. So is that when and how you started thinking about um, topics related to diversity and inclusion? I, I know we all talked about um, the need for uh, a broader um, mix in our hiring and, and 
in those days it was affirmative action and EEO. It, it was certainly something that we discussed not only about inside the company, but in terms of our outward-looking activities. It, did you, is that when you started, or did, did your involvement with diversity and inclusion professionally, did that come later? Um, it, it was in the uh, the late 1980s, Bev. Um, we we were looking at pulling a diversity initiative in the operating company. The the holding company and and the rest of the organization didn't do it at that time, but the president was insistent on it for a number of reasons. Uh, deregulation, some of the uh, what today might be referred to as whitewater environment, continuous change in the world meant that we had to have a continuous flow of good thinking and and a high level of of awareness of what was going on in the environment. So to see it from multiple viewpoints was was very important to the president of the operating company at the time. At at that point, I was uh, concluding a a stint in marketing and about to move over into the, uh, the public affairs arena, didn't know it at the time. But when they hired the diversity consultant to come in, I had the opportunity to set up a pretty neat research experiment since uh, the majority of the company wasn't conducting that kind of an intervention at the time. I asked, uh, and I know you'll remember the VP uh, of marketing at the time. I won't mention his name on board, but but he was also in charge of strategic planning, um, metrics throughout the organization, uh, a phenomenally bright uh, gentleman. And, and he allowed me to set up an experiment to look at how the company performed over a period of time uh, using uh, other business units that were not engaging in diversity interventions and actually flatly rejected them uh, and, and to be able to compare them to the operating company that I was in and see how they performed over time relative to the things that were crucial for diversity interventions. So that was my start. I wasn't in, in diversity, wasn't in HR, but it, it turned out to be a fascinating experiment that I was able to conduct over roughly a five-year period of data. So in those days, what was the definition of diversity in the context of HR and organizational activity? What, what were you studying? What kind of programs? Well, the... The, specifically, the program that our company engaged in was one that focused on on differences. The, the, the theme was managing differences, valuing differences, embracing differences, and that was wrapped into a frame of excellence. So the intervention itself was called Excellence Through Diversity, and it was awesome. Uh, the consultant came in and did an f- absolutely fabulous job. The 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 in the broader spectrum of diversity programs there really wasn't much of a definition at that point nothing you could pin down and say this is the way we were going to do it because it was a relatively new field so there was very little way to make relevant comparisons to what we were doing to what other companies were doing it was just named as an hr best practice so the HR folks around the country were engaging in it, but in ways that were customized for, for their own companies. No standards, uh, no consistent uniform metrics. So we had to go out and look for that. And uh, in the research, I was able to find uh, some primaries 
and use those to gauge our company's performance relative to the, the way the diversity programs were supposed to affect and improve the organization. And what did you discover? In the strata that I studied, it was a little disconcerting to a lot of folks that the diversity program didn't make a difference. Um, that's not to say that it didn't make any difference because I, I firmly believe that it did. But where I studied were middle management teams and uh, relevant behaviors. And uh, over a five-year period, uh, the data demonstrated that there was no difference between test group and control group, meaning folks who were engaged in the diversity programs and, and folks who were not, when it came to some very specific uh, behaviors. So that, it, was a, it was a bit disconcerting. Uh, it, it wasn't a, a deal killer for diversity as a, as a concept, uh, but it took a little bit of work to try to decipher why there, why there really was no difference. Since those days, some time ago, you have become a um, prolific writer. And I, huh. uh, you and I were not connected for quite a few years, but I started following you quite a while back because you you were writing about diversity and inclusion in a smart way. I just kind of stumbled on you, I think on LinkedIn. Um, yeah. And you got a big following. You've got like 30,000 social media f followers and you, you write a lot of smart stuff. And one of the things I, that you've pretty much said is that um, diversity programs are dead. I don't really think you meant they're dead. I, don't you, did, do you mean that it's time to like rethink the whole thing? Is that what you've been saying? Well, uh, in part, yes. The, let me respond specifically okay. to the dead part of it. Uh, the, the first issue is if you look at uh, uh, intent versus results and you get no results, or, or at least not the results that, that you desire, um, a, an equally appropriate term to use would be inert in relation to the effect that it has. What we're seeing today uh, reflects, it to, to a great extent, the mistakes we made in introducing demographic diversity in, into organizations back in the, in the late 60s, early 70s. The ancient proverb uh, that I made up a few years ago uh, is that Nobody runs into a forest fire to start planting new trees. Ah, yeah. They're, they're, yeah. And, and so after the 1965 legislation, as, as, as uh, beneficial as it was to the country overall, the, the corporations, workforces simply weren't prepared. The, the fires of the, of the late 50s and 60s were still uh, raging inside organizations, just as they were in, in society overall. It's just that the legislation forced us to change some behaviors. So, so when folks who were different came into organizations that weren't prepared for them, uh, we, ended, we ended up burning a lot of human acreage uh, over that period of time. Uh, CNG was, was not much different in that respect, at least at the operating company levels. So uh, the 
the challenge that a lot of organizations had was a, more or less a controlled entry. See how things went, then allow uh, you know a few more in. So, in in the process, uh, diversity itself was also becoming more well defined, and and so the the growing up together, more or less, the diversity concept growing up with corporate ability uh, to to integrate different people into the workplace has had a very interesting path. But in the end, the reason I use the term dead or inert is because when we look at the numbers, the the demographic numbers and the attainments over the period of time between 1970 or 80 and, and 2018, 19, the numbers are very much the way they were back in the 1980s. With one exception, um, uh, women have made a, a grand foray into the workplace in terms of representation at, at middle management levels and lower, uh, but there's still very little uh, uh, what you would hope to be um, uh, a parity in terms of attainments at, at the higher levels. You were a rare commodity back then. Uh, you still are, but in a different way. Uh, but uh, so the dead part of it really just means that the results aren't there. So, uh, you know, you, I, I wouldn't say that diversity is a bad thing. It doesn't necessarily um, change the things that we, that we thought it would change. And, and actually, because of the research, I unintentionally predicted that uh, in 1995 or so when I concluded the research project. Delayed the, the release of it a bit, but yeah. We'll be back with Bev after this brief message. Are you ready to make a difference in the world? The Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University can give you the skills to do just that. The school offers a multidisciplinary approach where public policy, environmental studies, and entrepreneurship come together to educate tomorrow's leaders. Learn more about the Master's in Public Administration or Environmental Studies by visiting ohio.edu backslash School. When we were talking about uh, diversity here, we're talking about diversity programs, diversity in the context of organizational management. But there has been um, lots of research and anecdotal information that suggests that if you can get a diverse group of people together, and I'm using the word diverse here very broadly, people who think differently, Mm -hmm. come from different backgrounds and um, different colors and genders and orientations of all sorts, if you can do that and have them work well together, the results can be stupendous. And um, you see it on, on boards. The impact of a diverse board on a company can be terrific. So there's, there is more understanding that looking at things pragmatically, organizations will do better if you can get people in and kind of moving up the pipeline and working well together. And 
as far as we've gotten, it feels like, the initial efforts helped us get junior people in. But then in a lot of places, things have stalled, or if they've gone on, they, people just aren't always being heard, or, you know, they're not, um, they're, they're not, not everybody is able to, uh, to grow and thrive. So where we are is that, and I'm really, I'm asking this as a question, if you, if I'm saying this right, where we are is that mm-hmm. the diversity programs that we thought about, which were mainly about getting people in, those are just over. It's, Yes. We've got to rethink it. And so what you've been doing and what I've been so intrigued about in, in your writing is that you've been saying, okay, uh, you can either um, declare it dead or you can declare some victories, but let's start fresh and figure out what we can do to put out the fires and have people working together and have uh, environments in which everybody can participate, right? You're asking that yeah. question, and you have um, you've been working on an answer. Yeah. So tell me about your answer. Your I I know from um, reading your things that you've you've copyrighted a term the the culture neutral framework, and that's part of your answer. Can can you tell us about it? Yeah, it, it it's trademarked the the idea is centered in a recognition that the conflict isn't going to go away that there since we're continually bringing people into our organizations from outside who deal with things the way we traditionally do in society we're not going to be bringing in people who are clean slates if you will we have to be able to understand that their biases and the conflicts that come with them are, are part of the package when we bring them in and to attempt to change or suppress that is kind of where the diversity programs are, are falling, even right down to bias uh, mitigation programs, what we sometimes refer to as unconscious bias, but not all the biases are unconscious by a long shot. So, uh, and one example uh, is, you know, you, you might remember we had back in 2008, the election of an African-American president. I recall. It, it seems so long ago. Yeah, it seems so long ago. <laughs> um, but during that period of time, from 2008, uh, before 2008 up to 2016, uh, the Harvard Implicit Association test has been run for millions, literally millions of people. So Harvard's been able to collect data on the path of bias uh, prior to 2008 all the way up to today. Uh, and, and what they found is that despite having an African-American president, uh, along with, uh, you know, cabinet members who were in, in administration that uh, had a great deal of, of racial diversity, the bias scores haven't changed since prior to 2008. So that sort of validates the idea that diversity isn't working the way we're presenting it. Uh, and, and thank goodness it's from someone who's truly a guru, uh, Anthony Greenwald and uh, Mazaran Banaji. So the, the idea of, of neutrality requires conflict. You just have to be able to find a neutral space in the middle, a third space 
where folks can stop, collect their thoughts, refuel, um, refresh, and, and revitalize inside an organization in much the same way neutral zones are set up uh, in, in literal conflict zones so that there's a place where good things can happen and necessary things can happen within that space. So the framework is a third space. The framework is also one that provides very specific guidelines on behaviors, just as you would within a literal neutral zone in a war, uh, and, uh, and teaches people uh, how to put their differences aside, as opposed to trying to resolve them or embrace them or value them, and, uh, and, and work together inside that zone. So instead of focusing on differences, which, and embracing them and talking about them, which we did in the early days in diversity program, you're suggesting that we need to know how to put them aside and focus on, on the work, on focus on what, on our, the tasks that we need to do together. What happens well, in that, that neutral space? It's amazing that you use that focus on the work. Uh, believe it or not, uh, from CNG, one of the and CNG, uh, uh, as the parent company, did not run a diversity program. And when specifically asked why not, their ver- one verbatim response said, "We focus on the work." So, so fo- focus on the work as opposed to differences is one aspect of it. There are places inside projects and work where having the differences is critical, but you're just not focusing on the difference between persons. You're looking at the differences in the ways we approach problems and and the expertise we can bring to them. So bringing expertise, for example, becomes the common ground. Bringing uh, varied viewpoints to get to a shared cognition is is part of the process the 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 sort of i won't call it a paradox but the the sort is 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 kind of obvious when a lot of people bring different viewpoints from their vantage points to define a problem once everyone in the group has a shared cognition of the problem that cognition is no longer diverse it's now um, homogenous within that group. And, and so once you've established that shared cognition, that becomes the core of where you work. That you can makes, still disrupt it. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me in theory. But let me ask, mm-hmm. let, let's say um, that we have listeners out there. I know we have a lot of listeners who run their own small businesses or they manage small teams at work. And they maybe are faced with people who aren't getting along as well as they might be, or um, there's conflict, or maybe there's just not enough communication. And they're all busy. <laughs> all of these people are busy. And most of the, um, these small teams can't bring in a consultant to help. So talking to our listeners who are sort of struggling with the problem and agreeing that be nice if everybody could work better despite various conflicts and differences. Where do they start? Do you have any suggestions? 
Um, well, yes, the, the budget issues. It, it may be true that folks don't have a, a strong uh, war chest for, for those kinds of activities. But it's absolutely amazing um, what you can get without having a, a long engagement or an expensive uh, uh, intervention with a consultant. Sometimes just calling and having a discussion for an hour or two about the framework that you might use to solve problems can be remarkably inexpensive. The, but, but beyond that, uh, for folks who are, uh, if you want to call them mom and pop uh, teams that are just a, a small group of people, again, you hit on the right word. You said communication. Establishing solid communication between folks uh, kind of overcomes the problem of, of time constraints. It, it really doesn't take very long often to ask somebody how they're doing or if you think you see a problem just to explore what may be going on with them for one or two minutes just to clear the air for dealing with a specific issue at a moment in time. The investment in doing that is well worth it. Uh, even when you're moving up on deadlines, communication becomes even more important. So part of the framework teaches how we can ask that question and get quick answers by understanding the, the pieces that you have to put together in order to get an answer in a very short period of time, one that'll help you and the other person or you and the team move forward. The one thing we often don't do is just ask the right questions at the right time. When we see behaviors that are a bit dissonant, then many of us just kind of clam up because we're not open to having that conversation at the moment. We need to do just the opposite. And, and the culture neutral framework helps you to understand how to do that. That makes sense to me. And it, it reminds me of some research uh, using communication mapping, looking, having mm -hmm. people wear badges so that you can um, tell when members of teams are talking to whom and by what means, yeah. even though you don't know the content. And, and the, my recollection is the communication mapping indicates that when there are lots and lots of person-to-person, -person, horizontal, or colleague-to-colleague, -colleague, not necessarily up and down the chain of command, when there are lots of lines of communication things work out much better that that just in creating an environment in which people talk to people and and the the channels are open uh, is is something to to work on if you're trying to have your team move past conflict right correct the the culture neutral framework in, engages technology but relatively inexpensive technology um for the, the Hitachi Group, for example, in Europe, is working with uh, a project called Humanize. And it's Humanize with a Y in the back syllable uh, as opposed to an I. And, and they're doing very much what you described. The technology uh, borders on intrusive, but it's a security badge that they actually strap on uh, that eventually will be everyone's security badge in that company when the pilot's over if it works. But they can detect... Everything from very small movements that may indicate some discomfort, uh, tonal quality in the voice, 
uh, the, the sort of the volume nature of interaction all coming through your security badge. Uh, they may even get into biometrics uh, uh, in the near term. Uh, those kinds of technologies are not generally available. They're very expensive. There are other things that we can use with existing tech that make it almost as easy to collect real-time data on what's going on with, with teams and dyads inside the organization and uh, uh, get a good feel, not just for uh, how well human interaction is going, but how well people respond and, and work together uh, as, as teams and how they move and interact inside the organization. It, it's not hard to do. You, we just need to take a, a, an approach different from that of differences and focus on how people are working together and discovering what works. So it's a whole new world when it comes to approaches to diversity and inclusion, it sounds like. Things are much more based on research on how people work together, and it, it feels like there's a, a lot of, of new thinking. What if some of our listeners want to learn more about the state of diversity and inclusion programs, and um, maybe they want to um, find out more about uh, how to manage conflicts that flow from cultural differences. C can you um, point them um, beyond your LinkedIn page, uh, and, the, <laughs> and your link will, is on the summary for our podcast, but beyond your uh, LinkedIn page, can you point them to a, a resource that might help get them started? I can. I'm, I'm very privileged to be a board member of a group called the New Diversity Summit, and it, it's online. For for those in your listeners who would like to get the inside scoop on what, what diversity professionals are doing, thinking, and teaching, uh, we're offering an extremely low price. And when I say extremely low price, I really mean it. Um, uh, conference with conference-grade materials, global expert speakers, 17, in fact, about 15 to 16 hours of instruction uh, available online. You can download the content, uh, study it, research it uh, with an individual license. And uh, for companies, there's a, a group license so that if multiple people want to take it, for example, a diversity council, um, we can arrange that. The... The summit specifically shows what some of the contemporary approaches are, um, all the way from uh, building very simple diversity awareness all the way up to more complex things like uh, dealing with uh, implicit or unconscious bias and what that means. World-class speakers and also a bit on, on transition, what the transition to a, a new game might involve. All right, that sounds so we, I can like a good starting point. There. So we'll mm -hmm. put a link on the um, summary that our listeners will be clicking in order to find you. And um, I think, again, um, your LinkedIn uh, profile is full of good information. And um, and you're, are you writing a book? Do I recall that, too? Is that something else that's coming? I, I am. I am. Uh, the that's that's coming. I hope to have it out by the end of the year, but uh, maybe sooner. We'll see what happens with that. And anybody who wants to look me up, even if they're not LinkedIn members, can find robertdjones.com, and uh, uh, that'll take them to 
a, a peek at my LinkedIn profile, and then we can go from there. Terrific. Well, Rob, it has been fabulous reconnecting with you, and I'm so uh, pleased to see all of the good work you've done, and I'm so happy to be uh, back in touch after all this time. Thanks so much for joining me today. It's been a privilege, Beth. Thank you so much for all the great work you have done and, and what you're continuing to do. Today we've been talking with leadership consultant Rob Jones about how it's probably time to rethink many of our assumptions about organizational diversity and inclusion. Today's career tip is that when you're on a team project, it's wise to keep refocusing folks on the outcome. And don't let yourself be distracted by the ways your colleagues don't speak or think or act like you. If you've enjoyed our show, please tell your friends. And if you love this podcast, I would so appreciate a five-star rating. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Bev Jones, author of Think Like an Entrepreneur, Act Like a CEO. Thank you.